Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined once again by David Roberts, who is an industrial entrepreneur with over 40 years' experience in the automotive and aerospace uh, sectors, and among other roles, is the chairman of Trimite Global Coatings. David, hello. Uh, good day to you, Matthew. How are you? I am well. Thank you very much for joining us on the program. You are a very busy man. You are either the trustee, the chairman, executive chairman, or owner of over 12 businesses. David, when do you sleep? Um, I usually sleep uh, between 2 a.m. and 6 uh, a.m., <laughs> uh, but I'm usually interrupted by uh, things going on in China during that time. Well, aren't uh, we but, all well, at this point in time? <laughs> Uh, but what I'd say to you, Matthew, and I say it to everyone, if you love what you do, it's not a job, it's not a role, it's not a work, it's a, a kind of vocation. Mm. And so I love what I do and I'll carry on until I guess I, I get taken out in a box. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you develop that work ethic? Uh, I think I developed it from my family roots. So my, my family was very much a working class uh, uh, family. But they have really high ethics of work, you know, so get in early, stay late, do long hours. My father used to say to me, if you do twice the hours of the guy next to you, you will go twice as far. Mm. And, and there's a little bit of truth in that statement that I think if you do put the hours in, you do get the reward. Was it Gary Player who said, my, I, my luck seems to get better than my practice luck? So I, I think that's kind of one of the keys here. Would you say your father was your role model in business? Not really, no. My father was a manual worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in the RAF in the war and then came out and did uh, manual work. So uh, what he taught me, I guess, was was on one side of the tracks is a, a life of manual labor and manual work versus the management role, which is more, I would say, my role. Uh, so... I think he taught me early on that, you know, get ahead, get educated, get to the top of the tree if you can, uh, and you'll have more influence and direction on your life and other people's lives. So, so from a, a low base, he kind of taught me aim at the top. Um, so you had a so, good so foundation of, of learning perseverance and dedication and hard work from him. I think so. And, and uh, I, I recall, you know, one of my uh, vacation jobs in college was to help manually build part of the motorway up in Lancashire at the time, the M61. So that was 12 hours of hard labor. And that, that was hard work. So, you know, swanning around in a car, in a suit, and making decisions while it has its own challenges, in a sense, is, is something I love compared mm-hmm. to digging a trench with a spade. Well, that's the uh, aspect of uh, the world of work that quite a lot of people who work in offices seem to forget. We have a symbiotic relationship with all different industries and different types of jobs. And if one cog falls out of place, the whole machine fails, doesn't it? It does. And, and you know, never more so in a, than in automotive and aerospace, also other industries, but particularly in the automotive and aerospace. You know, we have built over many, many years a very complex supply chain mechanism throughout the whole world based on globalization, based on free trade. So so if any part of that link in any chain is disrupted for a short period or a long period, whilst there's certain adaptability you can build around it, it's incredibly difficult to to change 20 years of building up a supply chain. Um, So that's a big challenge for us, particularly in these times where you know, we were taught for 40 years to optimize lean and optimize, you know, best practice and efficiencies. Mm. And given the new environment we now face ourselves where space is at a premium and working safely is at a premium, there's a big conflict going on with lots of teams about, well, how do we do both? How do we stay quality driven? How do we stay efficient yet maintain all these various social distancing practices we've got to do? And that's one of our biggest challenges, I think, in business now is adapting quickly. Everybody calls a new normal. Now, I'd like to circle back uh, to the virus uh, in a little while, but I would like to touch on how did you get into the aerospace and automotive sectors? What was the impetus? 
So a car has always given me freedom to move. And uh, I love driving. I love big engine cars, although they're becoming a thing of the past. So so cars for me were always a a passport to freedom. And uh, I got in the car industry in the mid-70s with a, a big automotive group called Chrysler. That, in, that kind of got me into volume manufacture of vehicles. And gradually, I built my way through all the OEMs into prestige vehicles, mm-hmm. luxury vehicles, supercar vehicles. So I'm now involved with companies as diverse as Ferrari in Italy, where we supply a lot of parts. BMW in Germany, which is more of a, a volume manufacturer. Aston Martin, McLaren, Lotus. And of course, we recently acquired the David Brown Automotive business in the UK, which makes very, very prestigious vehicles uh, in a retrofit. Now, of course, um, Chrysler is an American company. Uh, did it's you yes. did you have any uh, of those American business um, uh, methods uh, imparted to you while you were working for Chrysler? And has that formed the way that you look at business within uh, the UK sector? Well, what uh, Chrysler was my first introduction to management, and uh, I worked for Don Landry, who was a very famous guy in Chrysler. And Don taught me a, a huge amount. He was a great mentor. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things Don taught me, which I've tried to carry on in life, is a mentor really listens to people as opposed to, you know, tells them things. And, and from that discussion then evolves a, a very comfortable environment to speak to people. So I think what Don taught me was whoever you're in the room with, David, make them feel very special because then they'll, they'll have the confidence to tell you about the business, about the issues, about solutions, and have the confidence to kind of deal with it. So, so the, bizarrely, from this great corporation, Chrysler, I actually sort of evolved a, a technique of trying to help people be comfortable and relax. And in that relaxation, they perform better than, you know, so I was always more carrot than stick mm-hmm. as a management tool. Do you feel that it is important for um, those who are supervisors uh, to subordinates within industries to really take those below them under their wing? I, I think it's absolutely essential to have that trait if you want to grow up in the management tree. I also see a number of managers and executives who believe they're beyond that and they have a slight amount of arrogance, particularly if they've had a successful run of uh, business. But I think if you can express humility, if you can express concern for people, and if you can give them the time uh, to talk, I I think that's part of being a leader. And uh, regretfully, as we look at the world, both in politics and, and other areas, I don't see a lot of that. I don't see a lot of what I call humility and ability to laugh at oneself. Mm. And, and make people enjoy the experience, however difficult it is. And, and, you know, the crisis on COVID is a difficult period, but there is a way of getting enjoyment from that. And it's just getting the management teams into that place of, of thinking about the other guy, thinking about the other person, putting themselves in the other person's shoes and having some empathy for that. That, that, that way doesn't mean you're a, an easy touch or a soft touch. I think it, it just helps develop business relationships. And, and what I think is key in a leader is having very deep-seated relationships with key decision-makers, mm. whatever your organization is. And you're not going to do that easily if, if you come across as a very combative, uh, arrogant, demanding boss. And you've got to balance all of those issues. Now, I know you have great admiration for Alex Ferguson. Do you feel that he exemplifies uh, those leadership characteristics you were just speaking of? I think he does. And uh, I think what Alex, you know, Alex did a turnaround at Manchester United, you know, in those days, mm. which some people forget about. But what Alex had, and, and I kind of admire most football managers because they have to be responsible for a bunch of very uh, widely differing young guys in the main, whilst dealing with a whole PR campaign and a media campaign and demands from fans. So they've got to balance lots of things. But what Alex does incredibly well, and he does it still to this day, he exudes a spirit of confidence. He exudes a spirit of knowing where he's going. And he has that ability to talk on a one-to-one or a team basis 
and inspire people around him, some of whom are very, very difficult people to, to motivate, uh, and even more so in the last few years with the amount of money that's gone into football. So, so Alex, and, and Alex was a humble guy. Uh, mm. Yes, he came across in many interviews as, as maybe a tough man, and he is a tough guy. But underneath all of that, Alex is a very humble guy and grateful for what he's done. So those are really good traits for any, any, any aspiring leader, I think, to look at. Now, of course, we can't avoid the subject any longer. When we spoke to you back in January, uh, we were just coming uh, to discuss uh, the COVID outbreak in China. Uh, COVID is now here and it's across the world. What impact has it had on your businesses? Well, let me give you two examples, a good one and a not so good one. So we have a business in Stoke-on-Trent called Royal Dalton. Um, a very famous brand, of course. Um, uh, we produce a set of water filters throughout the world. 90% are exported all over the world. Uh, they're made from natural products. And, of course, we've seen a huge resurgence in people wanting clean water all over the world, partly driven by COVID and partly driven by an appreciation of we need to make sure we're you know, as clean as we possibly can be and as healthy as we can be. So, in a bizarre way, that company boomed over the last six months in terms of uh, its demand for its products everywhere. A more difficult uh, portfolio company is David Brown, which is a car maker based in uh, Silverstone. And of course, there we've had to deal with uh, customer issues where customers disappeared on us, supplier issues where suppliers have disappeared on us, uh, staff issues in in terms of dealing with uh, all the issues of safety around the staff, and of course, a complete stop in sales and activity. So so two examples, uh, and part of what I'm seeing is the roulette of of COVID. Depending where you are in the supply chain and your customer base, you've either done really, really well, particularly if you have products that were online and capable of being delivered. But if you were in a sector that wasn't that way, particularly high street, theatres, pubs, restaurants, you've had the most dreadful time. And, and that calls out for kind of different leadership, I think, almost a war-footing leadership to make sure you get through it and survive. What sort of uh, different procedures have you had to put in place and how have they differed between the different businesses? Um, so we, as a general rule, we've adopted a more short-sighted, short-term approach So all our teams tend to focus on only the issues they can fix and control. If we can't fix and control that issue, we we don't deal with it. We move it on. Mm -hmm. We're very more agile in terms of we do a daily call with everybody. Uh, We deal with those issues. We can deal with them. Uh, We are kind of on a war footing in each business to make sure we get through it. Um, I say to everybody, however difficult this is, enjoy it. I'll give you an example of that. In the car industry, the car industry has boomed since 2009, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of young guys and girls in management roles who've never seen anything other than good times. So to have, I've been through seven um, major falls in demand in the automotive industry since 1975. So I say to all of them, it, this is going to hurt what we're going to go through, but you're going to learn you're going to learn that there is no uh, magic money tree. You're going to learn how cash really matters in a business to survive. And you're going to learn cash techniques to make sure this business survives and you survive. And that's a good education. Sounds bizarre, but learn to enjoy the ride. Learn to achieve those objectives of getting through the next six weeks. And, And so some people do that and they do it incredibly well and they rise to the challenge and they walk towards problems. Some other people really struggle with it, and, and you've got to try and help those guys out. But I say to everybody, look for the opportunity. You'll always find, within however great a crisis it is, there's opportunities. You've just got to go find them. And that's the challenge, finding those opportunities some days. So, so we try and exude you know, optimism, confidence, whatever problems come our way. We'll deal with it. We'll deal with it quickly. And if we can't fix the problem, don't deal with it move on because you can spend all day worrying about a problem that actually you can't fix or control. So ignore it and move on and fix those things you can control within within your sphere. 
Now, as we speak, the Prime Minister is preparing to make a statement to the nation regarding uh, a possible second re-implementation of various aspects of the earlier lockdown. How do you feel this is going to impact the British economy? Um, I don't envy Boris Johnson with what he's got to do today. Um, He's got to balance, obviously, the two things of the economy versus the health of the nation. The two are completely incompatible. Uh, that diametrically opposed. So I think he's going to try and aim for a balance, but who knows. Uh, if we go into a lockdown, the consequences of that second lockdown, although we know a lot more than we did in, in February, I think the consequences for that lockdown are grave for a vast majority of the UK sector. Um, so I think it, that'll be the last thing people want to do. However, uh, if the numbers rise, uh, I don't think we'll have any choice but to uh, get, get try and get control of COVID and the numbers. So I, I, I just don't envy him at all. Uh, I think he's got in a terrible position, um, and I think it's going to be a difficult choice. So we, we, we as a team across all our companies have always believed this winter was going to be a difficult winter. Uh, We've also got that other word, Brexit, coming our way in a few weeks' time. Mm. So uh, we've been kind of planning for the worst in terms of what we think um, may evolve over the period up to Christmas and then in June, March. So we've kind of got effectively a lockdown plan in place uh, for any eventuality. But but the the, the macro impact of a a lockdown, uh, I think, unfortunately, will be the end for a number of companies. Now, you are quite right in saying the other word that uh, has uh, been off of most people's lips for the past few months, but was nothing uh, but on them before, is Brexit. If we put COVID to one side for a moment, what impact on the current status of Brexit uh, is having on your businesses? I, I think Brexit um, is, is an issue waiting to happen. And unfortunately, it looks like now business isn't going to get a steer or a direction until it's probably too late in the day on which way this is going to go. So business can deal with no deal. It can deal, it can deal with a deal. But what it really struggles with is not knowing which way it's going to turn, which way it's going to fall out. And I, I, I worry that we're going to get late in the day a resolution of that but it may be too late in the day for a lot of companies to react and deal with. And remember, we've already had a couple of false dawns on Brexit when we thought we were leaving and we didn't. Most companies stocked up in manufacturing and then de-stocked. They've done it twice. So a lot of companies struggling with COVID and struggling with working capital and cash. The last thing they want to think about is let's go and stock up for Christmas so we've got a good supply of stocking on the back of COVID, on the back of working capital, and on the back of a deal, not knowing what shape it's going to end up in. So it's actually the worst of all worlds. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think if we could have clarity, which is something that's been difficult, I think, for this government over the the issues they've had to deal with, but, you know, we'd love clarity. So again, coming back to it's a problem we can't fix and solve, all our teams are working on the basis of a no deal. Now, of course... Uh, when it comes to no deal or deal, in your personal opinion, which would be best for British industry? Deal. Mm. And what sort of deal should we have with European Union? Uh, we should have a deal that gives us effectively frictionless trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, because any form of friction in that trade and supply chain disruption will have a lot of impact on costs, competitiveness and ultimately jobs and prosperity. So we, we really want to aim, with all our trade deals, whether it's with the EU, whether it's with Japan, Australia, America, we really want to have as a first principle, we do frictionless trade. We're a country you can trade with. We're a country that's used to technology changes, that's used to zero tariff barriers, both inbound and outbound. If we could get to that, we, w- we would have the best way of developing the UK, from certainly a manufacturing base. 
Now, shifting gears, uh, when you were last on the podcast back in January, Jonathan asked you your opinions on HS2. With the developing uh, situation uh, that we've had out of COVID, where more and more companies have seen that working from home is working, uh, they're skewing physical offices and meetings. Do you still think HS2 is a valid option? Um, I think HS2 is a valid option primarily because I think if you don't develop infrastructure and have government spending, and I'm probably now an advocate of what, what's known as modern monetary policy. Um, I, I think unless you have that infrastructure spending, you're not going to kickstart the country. You could argue you could spend the, that $100 billion in other areas of the economy, but I think developing a, a high rail network around the UK is essential if we're going to go forward for the next 200, 300 years. So yes, I'm I'm still a big supporter of HS2. Now, unfortunately, our time together is on the wane. So before I let you go, I'd like to hear your final thoughts on what we can do as a nation to push through our current difficulties, whether it be Brexit or COVID. I think the, the that's not an easy question, but I think the, the simple answer is we need strong leadership from government and very clear, cohesive, honest policies that come out of the government. The vast majority of Britons want to support the government. They want they want to be together. But we need really clear, cohesive leadership from the government to achieve that. Well, David, you're almost sounding like a parliamentary candidate. We never know. We might see that at some point. But I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you on board once again. And of course, you're always welcome here on the podcast. David, thank you. Thank you. That was David Roberts, chairman of TriMic Global Coatings. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with our chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both 
the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in 
maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding, 
my only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be the prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, 
which will be devastating enough. But on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. 
and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not 
going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.